1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas, and I am your host for today's interview. And I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Tracy Bryn-Voyles, who is an associate professor and is the chair of women's and gender studies at the University of Oklahoma and is the author of the new book, The Settler's Sea. California's Salton Sea and the Consequences of Colonialism, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press just a couple months ago at the end of 2021. Welcome to the show, Tracy, good to have you.
1: Thanks, Steve, I'm so happy to be here.
2: Let's begin, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you, the author. So tell us a bit about yourself, about your academic background, and about how you became interested in history and in women's and gender studies.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I am originally from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and did my uh, PhD work in Southern California at the University of California, San Diego, um, and a postdoc at UC uh, California Davis um, in 2011. Um, in the history department and in their environments and societies um, initiative um, so all of my training as an academic has been in um, critical ethnic studies that was what my PhD was in uh, and gender studies um, but as I was working on uh, my dissertation I became really um, sort of deeply enamored with the kinds of questions that historians um, posed and the, and the kind of power um, that that uh, historical, uh, kind of thinking brought to, sorry, sorry about that, uh, (laughs) brought to, That's okay. It's happened before actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, the kinds of, the power that historical questions brought to the sorts of research that I was interested in doing. Um, so when I was a, a graduate student, um, I was really lucky to be trained, um, in an ethnic studies department by, um some of the the kind of foremost thinkers in environmental justice studies um in the country um and uh worked very closely with them in thinking about um questions of um environment and power um in the sort of broader um uh, research areas that that we we're all kind of uh, collectively interested in um so i like to say that uh when i begin talks that um my my, my degree programs have all been in ethnic studies. My appointments um, in departments as a faculty member have all been in women's and gender studies. Uh, I primarily work in history, and I was trained by sociologists. Uh, so it kind of brings this um, very rich interdisciplinarity to um, the kinds of approaches that, um, that, that I bring to my work. Um, but since my postdoc, I've been primarily working um, as a historian. Um, My first book um, explored was based on my dissertation research and explored the history of uranium mining uh, on the Navajo Nation. Um, And that book came out in 2015 with the University of Minnesota Press. It was called Wastelanding, Uh, Legacies of Uranium Mining in Navajo Country. Um, And in that book, um, I was really deeply invested um, in seeking to understand uh, how particular kinds of landscapes, in this case the Navajo Nation, uh, came to be rendered pollutable. Uh, and what are the sort of historical processes by which um, dominant understandings of um, landscape and race and settler colonialism and indig- indigeneity um, uh, sort of co-constitute um, these, the, the kinds of conditions in which um, sort of radical um, forms of environmental pollution and environmental injustice come to take place. Um, so those were the sort of questions that, that um, kind of launched my uh, career, I've been really lucky to be appointed in Women's and Gender Studies departments uh, at Loyola Marymount University and now at the University of Oklahoma, and um, so that's been a really rich um, kind of space for me um, to continue to explore the, the, the sort of um, the, the feminist questions uh, that are sort of make up the marrow. Um, of my work, yeah. So it's a little bit about where I'm coming from and and how I came to this project.
2: And I'm I'm really not surprised to hear that you have such an interdisciplinary background because you know <laughs> I've I've read both your both your books at this point and they're both super interdisciplinary in their in their methodology and in how you approach the past as well. They're really good examples of how to do say environmental justice uh, kind of work through a historical lens. So mm-hmm. hear that that's your background is it, it all makes sense to me. It all kind of comes together.
1: <laughs> that's great, thank you.
2: And how did you become interested in this project in particular? Why write about the Salton mm-hmm. Sea and its
1: relationship to colonialism? Oh, that's a great question, yeah. So I came to this project just as I was finishing um, really my dissertation research um, at a moment when I was um, kind of thinking about what a second project might look like um, and what what sort of lessons I wanted to take from my first book. Um, which you know, these two books are what I describe as environmental justice histories um, that are both kind of related. I mean, they're in very, very different geographies, very different kinds of places, um, and tell very different stories. Um, I think, but they both um, kind of share this this background of seeking to understand um, the histories um, that build contemporary um, problems of environmental injustices. So that's kind of the the thread that ties them together. I wasn't necessarily looking um, to do um, two books that were were sort of invested in in um, that kind of set of questions. When I when I came to this project originally, uh, I was living in Southern California. I had um, during my graduate training um, been very far away from um, the Navajo Nation, which is where my first project um, was cited, and. Um, and and so i was I was interested in um doing a project that was more uh geographically close to where I was living um a research site where I could um, do work that was connected to the communities um, involved in the study um and I was also really really interested and fascinated by the history of um Southern California, um, and, and particularly environmental questions in Southern California, um, and I began um, exploring a topic that was um, actually uh, very deeply part of the first project, which is energy injustice. And in Southern California, I was I was very interested and compelled by examples of energy injustice that were actually involved in wind and solar farms. Um, in the desert sort of regions of Southern California. And it was something that I was paying you know, close attention to, the relationship between solar and wind farms um, and indigenous nations um, in Southern California. Um, and then uh, I sort of became entranced by the Salton Sea, which is this vast body of water um, in the middle of um, the desert and Imperial and Riverside counties. Um, and um, started exploring the history of, of this body of water, um, and the kinds of questions that it brought to me um, really kind of took over, um, uh, captured my attention, um, and and clearly held it for long enough to produce this this project. <laughs> I mean, the Salton Sea, as anybody who's familiar with it knows, is just an incredibly complex place. Um, and it posed questions to me that I found um, to me among the most intellectually challenging questions that I've grappled with as a scholar. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, it, it just kind of became something that I couldn't let go of um, and wanted to keep, uh, keep thinking about.
2: Well, let's keep going on, on this topic of, of the Sea. I realized on my notes, you know, the title of the book is the Settler Sea, and every time I come to the <laughs> word Salt and Sea, I keep wanting to call it Settler Sea. It's a it's a great it's a great and very evocative title. So if I if I slip, forgive me. But um, yeah, let's talk more about about the Salt and Sea. You said that I believe mm-hmm. the word that you used was 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 entrancing, and and it's mm-hmm. it is indeed a very unique place. It's it's a fascinating mm-hmm. place to to read about. So. If for assuming that someone maybe knows nothing about the Salton Sea, how would you describe it? What makes it such a unique and endlessly fascinating place?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very difficult place to understand, um, and, and a lot of um, folks have written very beautifully and evocatively um, about the Salton Sea. It's um caused a lot of um kind of consternation, I think, among both scholars and policymakers as well as environmentalists, um, to seek to kind of understand what it is. Um so the Salton Sea is California's largest inland body of water. Um it is in um, the Southern California, you know, the part of Southern California that's in the, the sort of desert regions in the central part of the state um, and in the northernmost part of the Sonoran ecoregion. So it's part of the Sonoran desert, um, or it's sit, it sits in part of the Sonoran desert um, and overlaps with the US Mexico um, in a sort of border area. Um, it's been sustained throughout the 20th century um, from inflow from um, two very vast and very profitable agricultural regions, the Imperial Valley to the south and the Coachella Valley to the north, um, and runoff from the farms in those agricultural regions has sustained the Salton sea's water levels um, since the early part of the 20th century. Um, and the, the, the history that sort of begins there Of the Salton Sea, you know, has prompted people to think about it as, you know, it 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 flooded at a time when um, settlers to the region were seeking to kind of establish these agricultural regions. Um, And and its flooding is associated with a lot of failures in their um, sort of irrigation networks and and dam systems. Um, So it's often treated as an accidental body of water or a mistake. Uh, And the environmental problems that are associated with it are are sort of tied to that idea that it's a human made um, body of water that never should have been there in the first place. Um, And its actual history really troubles um, that kind of notion. Um, And for me coming at this, you know, as an environmental historian, as an environmental humanist, um, who's been really deeply invested in questions about kind of the human nature binary. Um, and these notions that um, you know something is either purely of the human world or purely of the natural world, and how um, difficult that has been to you know uproot um, as a way of uh, organizing our environmental politics. All of those kinds of questions um, uh, sort of get prompted by um, the Salton Sea's 20th century history as well as its as its deeper history um so it's a really complex place um it is um, a place that asks questions about um labor rights for farm workers it's a place that asks questions about indigenous sovereignty the salton sea has been flooding um more than 40 percent of the torres martinez desert cahuilla reservation since 1906. Um, it's also a place that's very important to um, many uh, indigenous desert nations uh, in this part of california um, and it also asks these really important questions about um, environmentalism um, and, and toward the latter part of its history about environmental justice. Um, so all of that kind of folds into um, you know, its broader complexity um, and what uh, what's interesting to me about it, uh, sort of in the end is that there's no way to sort of pick apart um, the, the sort of social uh, consequences of the story of the Salton Sea from the environmental or ecological consequences, um, and so the book is really about um, kind of trying to grapple with that with that sort of complexity.
2: I want to ask you what might be a, a difficult question, given that we don't have an unlimited amount of time, but mm-hmm. the the analytical concept of settler colonialism is critical for how you examine the, the, the history of this place, the history of the Salton Sea. So can you give us, in as much as this is at all possible, sort of the, 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 the few minute thumbnail version of what settler colonialism is and, and why it is a useful way of thinking about the, the Salton Sea?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully I can answer in a way that that <laughs> did not seem quite as complicated as, as it might appear at first blush. Um, so settler colonialism is a primary framework of this book, uh, the hints in the title, The Settler Sea. Um, and um, I'll answer the the first part of the question before I um, sort of define settler colonialism for you. And um, the reason why I began to think um, about the, the sort of settler colonial um, framing for um, how the use story unfolded um, is because when I began to look at the Salton Sea um, and its history. Uh, I, I was my attention was captured by the same kinds of questions that other environmental historians um, have asked about it and that and that's primarily about whether or not it can be understood as human made or nature made. Um, So environmental historians have been very, very interested in the origins of um, the Salton Sea's 20th century and 21st century um, iteration. And that is a body of water um, that was formed um, from 1905 to 1907, just after settlers had arrived in this area um, and decided to irrigate um, the farmlands are what are now called Imperial and Coachella Valleys from water from the Colorado River. Um, they made a lot of mistakes in how they did um, the, the irrigation, the headgate design system, um, and caught and, and sort of precipitated this massive amount of flooding that created this this vast body of water in the desert. And that's the sort of um narrative that has produced the idea that the salton sea is human made um, but when you look at its history um, the salton sea is actually just the most recent version of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bodies of water that have occupied this part of the desert from colorado uh, river flowing since time immemorial um, this has been a, a really central feature of Um, the deserts, um, ecology and geology. Uh, It's been a really central feature of um, Indigenous environmental knowledge and environmental history Um, in the region. Local desert nations were very familiar with these kinds of floodings, and in fact the the flooding was among the first things that that, um, Indigenous peoples described to settlers um, when they first encountered one another in the 19th century. and and so those kinds of questions, you know, uh, have been important to environmental historians who have looked at, at the Salton Sea um, and kind of making these um, arguments about whether or not it's human made or nature made. And, and as I started to explore those, those kinds of questions, what I realized is that that's not actually the most interesting part of the story. Um, the most interesting part of the story isn't whether the Salton Sea is human-made or nature-made. The most interesting part of the story is that throughout the 20th century, it's been very, very clearly human-maintained. And that has been the most important sort of central feature shaping um, its its environmental conditions um, and um, its impact on on local human and uh, non-human lives. and it hasn't just been human-maintained over the course of the 20th century. It's been maintained by particular kinds of humans engaged in particular kinds of economic activities. Um, and that's that's really hinged on um, settler colonial kinds of practices and, um, and ecological relationships that are designed to extract profit from the land um, by engaging in these vast, you know, kind of region-wide. Uh, manipulations of local water systems, um, including and especially the Colorado River. Um, it, in um, the post-World War II part of its history, it's been about using chemical um, pesticides um, on crops in the Imperial and Coachella valleys um, in ways that polluted um, the local ecology, but also the water of the Salton Sea, um, how the sea's water level has been connected to irrigation levels. Um, in the Imperial and Coachella valleys. Um, and so for me, that kind of settler maintenance of the Salton Sea over the 20th century has really been um, the thing that has um, you know, created a hinge point um, in the history of bodies of water in the desert. And so for me, you know, once I kind of realized that that was the part of the story that I found um, particularly um, interesting Um, for me, that prompted questions about what, you know, as settler colonialism, as this power structure um, asks prompts and compels people to interact with their environment in particular kinds of ways, um, generally extractive, um, generally capitalist, certainly dispossessive of local native peoples, and certainly in ways that exploit racialized uh, labor forces, like in these areas, um, non-white farm workers. Um, and so all of those kinds of conditions together um, s- sort of provide an example of the way that um, settler colonialism as a power structure has organized um, historical forces and human uh, kind of agency within those historical forces. Um, and so for me, that that, that sort of constitutes the, um, uh, the kind of, um, the role that settler colonial, it sort of captures the role that settler colonialism plays, um, in this story for me. So by the time, you know, I came to, um, understand the story that I was seeking, um, to tell in the project. And in particular, by the time I sort of arrived at what I I think of as the central argument of the book, um, what it what became clear to me is that the Salton Sea was a really good example of this argument, which is um, that settler colonialism reshapes um, physical landscapes in ways that do settlers work for them. And that's the work of indigenous dis- dispossession, racial capitalism, um, and resource extractivism. Um, and what became interesting to me is looking at the Salton Sea as a physical manifestation of those kinds of forces that are that are built into. Um, settler colonialism, um, certainly in the West, but I think um, in interesting ways throughout US history.
2: I have a couple very small questions about uh, the the kind of technical side of the book and how how you structured the book. I come at this book, I come I came to this book as a as a historian, and not all mm-hmm. historians write books that are you know kind of strictly chronological. Mm-hmm. This happened, this happened, this happened. But many of them are, and while this book broadly moves chronologically, moves through time, it's also organized more kind of thematically than it is strictly chronologically. And I'm wondering why you chose to structure the book this way, and if you could talk a little bit about what the major themes of the book are uh, that are kind of embedded within the structure itself
1: yeah good yeah so the first thing that anybody um will uh will notice um if they visit the salton sea or even read a little bit about it um, is that it, you know as i say in the book that the the sea really resists representation it is too vast and it is too complex uh, to sort of capture in any one angle of vision Um, and as I, as I began to kind of structure the book, um, it was, it was very, very clear from an early stage, um, that a sort of straightforward chronology, um, was not going to, um, was not going to build a book that really captured the complexity in ways that did this story justice. Um, what I write about in the book is how I, I came to um think of it as uh uh, offering the reader a kind of kaleidoscope um into how to understand the salton sea story um so i see the chapters as different kinds of turns of the kaleidoscope and you can see the sort of overlapping um themes you can see the the overlapping um, kinds of valences um but what i ultimately sought to do um was choose um themes um, that gestured toward what I saw as the central agents of change in the Salton Sea's history in different kinds of time periods. So they fall out roughly chronologically, but each chapter sort of contains its own internal chronology. Um, And those. so the the book is structured in three parts. Um, The first part, the the sort of agents of change in, in the sea's environmental history that I identified were desert and flood, Um, so desert really looks at um, the way that the desert ecosystem um, has shaped human relationships to this area, um, indigenous um, uh, ecological relations, as well as um, political economies um, in the area amongst um, a variety of desert nations. Um, And then Flood looks at the the way that water and and especially Colorado River water um, has shaped the geology of the region, the human history of the region, um, and certainly then came to shape the settler story um, of the area once settlers began to arrive and and, and try to um, really kind of cold profit from the desert um, in the latter part of the 19th century. Part two moves on to um, three chapters are called birds concrete and bodies. Um, so each chapter um, just has a single word title that sort of seems to ch- capture this theme. Um, birds is really a bird's eye view um, of and Sea history. So so birds have been um, maybe the most important non-human um, uh, actor in, in this kind of region um, and some of the most important characters in my story. So that chapter really looks at how um, birds have Um, influenced and changed um, the Salton Sea story, have shaped its story, um, but also how human ideas about birds um, have changed its story. Um, How have humans sort of projected different kinds of um, ideas onto birds have projected different kinds of meaning um, onto birds in ways that have been really consequential um, for how the story played out. Um, The next chapter, Concrete, Uh, ties the Salton Sea into um, a broader system of damming on river waterways in the West and across um, the U.S. in the 20th century. I think the dams um, have been uh, one of the most um, influential um, kinds of forces in U.S. environmental history, um, and even in how settler colonialism has proceeded for indigenous nations. Um, And that's certainly true of the story of the Salton Sea. Um, So the Salton Sea's history is really deeply connected to the history of damming, particularly along the Colorado River uh, in ways that have been very, very consequential. Um, bodies is a chapter that looks at bodies of various different kinds of scales. Um, So I certainly look at the comings and goings of human bodies and particularly how um, those comings and goings of human bodies have um, impacted disease ecologies in the area. And um, so this area was in the late 19th century, kind of part of the broader, um, uh, the broader part of California's history that saw sunshine as um, a really good um, way of combating infectious diseases like tuberculosis, um, sanitariums were an important part of the kind of local history of the communities that were being built up in this part of the desert. Um, and from that moment onward, um, disease ecologies were really shaped by um, uh, human communities, as well as you know, in in ways that I that I observe in this chapter. Um, I think that the the water itself, the Salton Sea itself, has been important to stories about human um, health, human recuperation, human recreation, um, in and around the Salton Sea. So this is a chapter where I get to talk about fun things like um, when the Salton Sea became uh, what was called California's Riviera or this health resort in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and celebrities would go in, and sunbathe and go fish in the water and um, swim in what was basically <laughs> a sump for agricultural runoff um, and all of those different kinds of things. And so the final part of the book, part three, um, really explores three, um, three themes um, that center on um, forces that have been um, impossible to overlook Um, in the latter part of the 20th century. And those three themes are um, bombs, chains, and toxins. Uh, So the Bombs book um, is examining the military uses of the Salton Sea. I was sort of startled to find that there were these other kinds of connections between my first book, which was about Uh, the Cold War and nuclear arms and nuclear power in the Salton Sea, uh, because the Salton Sea actually has this very rich and surprising history of being used as a military, um, uh, military weapons development area. It was used for target practice, um, and it actually has these very surprising connections um, to World War II uh, militarization, and also to um, uh, the Cold War. Um, so tracking the ways that the military has has viewed the Salton Sea, I, I describe this as a bomb's eye view um, of the sea and what that tells us about kind of human ideas um, and human meaning making about this body of water in the desert um, and what kinds of implications that has for human communities around it. Um, the seventh chapter chains um, is maybe the chapter I hesitate to say this maybe the chapter I am most proud of. Um, I, this is a chapter that came late to the book. Um, it was something that, um, arrived as part of the book because of archival evidence that I simply couldn't ignore anymore. Um, and it was about the history of, um, incarceration, um, prison building and policing in the area and its relationship to this body of water, um, in the desert and the human communities that surrounded it. Um, so that's a chapter where I really get to track um, some fascinating questions about the environmental consequences of um, incarceration um, in in this part of California, which has been um, a huge force of change um, and and a huge source of um, uh, uh, injustices for human communities. But I also get to look uh, in this chapter or, or the, the kind of conditions around the Salton Sea sort of prompted me um, to take very seriously um, how incarceration um, produces really vast um, and poorly understood um, environmental injustices for both incarcerated populations as well as populations of people in these sort of carceral landscapes. Um, so that's a chapter um, when, that, that I think The way that I think of it is that the book asked me to write this chapter um, and it became something that was really transformative um, for the way that I think about what constitutes um, the subject matter of environmental history Um, and then the final body chapter toxins um, really closely tracks the history of um, particularly the pesticide um, industry and and the way that pesticides have impacted the, the, the Salton sea's ecological conditions, as well as, again, um, environmental injustices, including respiratory um, diseases for local human communities. Um, so this chapter um, really grapples um, with the sort of bonanza of chemical pesticides that were released on agricultural regions across the US and the world, but particularly in the Imperial and Coachella Valleys. Um, at the end of World War II um, and it also looks at the sea is as, as what I call in the book a, an archive of toxins as a way that, of tracing um, sort of the toxic history of um, the latter part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st um, so that's how I came to organize the structure of the book um, uh, it served um, the story, I think, really well, um, to, to approach it in this way rather than to walk through it as um, a straightforward chronology. And as I said, <laughs> the Salton Sea doesn't lend itself to anything that, that might be described as, as straightforward. Um, so it's my hope that, that readers kind of get a sense of how complex this place is by simply how complex the story is to tell.
2: Complex And, you know, we can get into some of the the topics that you just described in in a little bit. We can dive into uh, a few of them. Mm -hmm. But just hearing you lay all the different chapters out one by Mm -hmm. one like that, it really drove home to me just how well this book works as sort of, how do I want to put this, a a glimpse at what environmental history or what environmental justice Mm -hmm. studies can really do. Because you're taking one body of water, one inland sea, and you're spinning out all these different stories from it that cover a lot of different intellectual and historical mm. and methodological ground. And, you know, you can't just look at, at the Salton Sea, as you keep saying, as one particular thing. It actually, it touches on all these other topics. So mm. this, this book really does cover a lot of ground. And I think that's, you know, the, 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 the joy of writing works like this and the power mm. of doing this kind of scholarship.
1: Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly is. I think that one of the one of the things that that kept coming back to me over and over again is the Salton Sea as a fascinating and unique microcosm. I mean, the way that, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. It, it encapsulates um, and, and meshes all of these other kinds of parts of environmental history with something that, that, that for me, one of the the, the biggest takeaways um, was about you know how it functions as a microcosm of mm-hmm. um, much broader kind of sets of problems that would have taken me three times as long to write books about. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> all, all the chapters you said could be a book on their own. So to combine them into one book was 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 fun was fun to read. Um, oh, cool. I have one other very small methodological question, just or not even methodological, just sort of a structural question, something that, that stood out to me as I was reading the book that I was just mm. curious about why you decided to, to put this in. But you begin each chapter of the book with a quote, which is not necessarily that rare. A lot of a lot of, of, of authors will start chapters with, with epigraphs, but all of yours, as far as I could tell, were by scholars. Many of them mm. were by historians who I, I knew and recognized, people like Ned Blackhawk or by mm-hmm. Lisa Brooks. And then I was just curious why you chose some of these particular authors for these epigraphs
1: yeah I'm glad you picked up on on that piece of it because that was um you know a really important part um to me as a writer um, was the way that I was um uh, sort of thinking about the broader you know themes of each of these chapters um and the kinds of of scholars that I was drawing from so the epigraphs sort of Work in a couple of ways, and and in some ways they might be there more for me, <laughs> um, but I hope that they're 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 useful for the reader as well. Um, one of the ways is is simply that these were quotations that were particularly important to me as a writer, um, that functioned as touchstones um, for me as I as I built um, the written part of the project, um, the kind of themes that I would have, you know probably on a post-it note in front of my computer um, to remind me of um, the, the, the themes that I was looking for, the themes that I was tracking through the story, um, but also in many cases, what the stakes of the case were. Um, so in some senses, um, they're there you know, as touchstones for me as a writer and hopefully for the reader as well, um, to kind of, you know, at, at a moment when you might feel lost in the complexity of the narrative, um to to be able to come back to um uh kind of what the 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 bigger conceptual theme might be um but the other piece of it um is simply you know as um you know as as an interdisciplinary scholar um these were in some ways um you, you know my um my little nod to um you know the broader Field of, fields of scholarship that I'm you know, seeking to engage or the broader fields of scholarship that inspire me, in some ways they function as a kind of gesture to my citational practices, um, which draw really strongly from um, uh, indigenous studies and critical ethnic studies, um, as well as from history. Um, and so they were moments for me um, to kind of, um, just just nod back to um these broader fields of scholarship. None of us are writing um in isolation, of course, even though it feels like that a lot of the time. Um for me, these are these are the 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 moments when I get to acknowledge um the broader community of scholars that have built me um and and who I hope to be in conversation with. Um, And also in some ways to to kind of um, uh, nudge the reader, um, to, to, to look at other kinds of pieces, um, that I might be suggesting in the text without necessarily directly engaging. Um, so, so zeroing down on one epigraph for each chapter was a challenge for me (laughs) (laughs) because often they had a lot, um, but in that process of sort of winnowing down, you know, who is the person who I want to, lead off this chapter, um, to, to, to be a leader in the text. Um, it was really fun for me.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/slash system. At EverNorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible.
2: Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI—it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/slash Wonder. It's it's kind of a, an interesting twist on how, as, as scholars, we'll often you know will will we'll nod to somebody whose work has has impacted the, the the thing that we're writing a lot in, like a footnote or something. And this is sort of taking that and kind of expanding it, right? Instead of hiding it away in a footnote or in an endnote where, you know, a lot of people might not ever actually see it. Instead, you're spotlighting it and saying, you know, right up front, this is the kind of, of, of scholarship. This is the kind of person that I am thinking about or the, the kind of work that I'm thinking about when writing this. You should all be thinking about this, too, which which is kind of a, an interesting twist on the way that scholars usually do that sort of thing. So I, I appreciate that.
1: Oh, I love that. Thank you. <laughs>
2: That's great. So. Uh, I I don't don't want to keep us for too long, but I do want to make sure that we get into some of of the the, the larger stories that are at play here that you gave a preview of uh, a little while ago. So I have a couple questions about the, the history of the Salton Sea and what we can learn about the Salton Sea. So let's start, in as much as we can... At the beginning tell us a bit about the long history of the salton sea because this place does indeed have a very long history that dates back way before anyone was calling it the salton sea so who were the region's indigenous inhabitants uh what sort of life did they live in this dry region during the very long period before colonization it
1: mm-hmm. was a good question so it, so i got to um uh, really think about um, deep time uh, in this project, and in ways that um, sometimes surprised me, and certainly um, challenged me, um, and, and got to engage with um, uh, geologists um, in ways that I had not uh, done for my first book. Um, yeah, which is exciting, and I always have so much respect for my scientist colleagues. Um, so this um part of the desert was really shaped in in very material ways right um by the colorado river um so you can't you know one of the first things that i always used to say in talks that i would give on this history um is that you can't understand the salton sea without first understanding the colorado river um and the colorado river um which is um you know if you look at it on a map it doesn't seem at least you know particularly now and in, in, in its riverbed it doesn't seem like it has a clear connection um to the part of California where the Salton sea sits um but in fact you know rivers as we know don't don't adhere to the riverbeds that we draw for them on maps um they move around they fluctuate um certainly over the course of time um and in um the course, or over the course of, of hundreds of thousands of years, the Colorado River, um, and particularly in its um, kind of southernmost um, portion, moved around quite a lot. And it would um, move back and forth uh, uh, between moving to the north and to where the Salton Sea now sits and sort of flooding this part of uh, Southern California, um, and then moving down into what we think of it as its, um, can, as its current day um, sort of delta. Um, in the Gulf of California. Um, And it would fluctuate in this way, what one um, historian (laughs) in the early 20th century called a liquid pendulum. Um, So in the book I write about this as as sort of, if you can imagine, you know, a snake just flicking the very end of its tail, Um, it would flood back and forth um, across this this kind of desert um, area. As you can imagine, um, the desert was populated by a number of indigenous nations. Um, I focus in the book most, uh, directly on Kiowas um, and Kumeyas, Um, but there are a number of other um, nations that have really deep connections to this this part of the Colorado River's um, sort of uh, desert ecosystem. Um, and and as you can imagine, that that kind of fluctuation of water in the desert, and and the kind of changes between you know being a, a kind of lake based um, very wet ecosystem um, versus a very dry desert region, um, meant that these indigenous nations needed to grapple with very different kinds of ecological realities, um, sometimes over the course of a single person's life. Um, so major stands of flooding in the area um, were generally referred to as Lake Kahuilla, sort of collectively referred to these very vast bodies of water that preceded the Salton Sea is Lake Cahuilla. They're much larger than the Salton Sea actually is now. And they would take up a much bigger portion of the desert area. Um, And if you've been to this area, one of the first things that you notice is that there's there's bathtub rings um, and around the, the mountains and foothills where you can actually see the high water mark of ancient Lake Cahuilla, just yet more evidence um, that when settlers arrived here, it should have been clear based on these bathtub rings as well as um, uh, the things that local indigenous peoples told them um, that the Colorado River regularly flooded um, this this part of what they were calling California. Um, and so, so indigenous nations um, have very sophisticated uh, sort of relationships to the um, lake-based ecosystems as well as um, desert ecosystems. So desert Cahuillas in particular um, would sort of um, when the area flooded they would move up into the mountains of foothills um, to uh, town sites um, up at higher elevation and when the water evaporated moved down into the desert floor what's what was called by by settlers the salt and sink. there are um, a number of town sites um, at the bottom of where the Salton Sea now sits um, and, and these parts of, of the desert have been, you know, flooded and then evaporated um, uh, over and over again um, in these vast bodies of water that we refer to as Lake Korea, but also in smaller inundations so that the desert would have um, a number of smaller sort of overflows from the Colorado River Um, that just sort of maintained a a kind of regular fluctuation that was just sort of part of um, the environmental world um, of indigenous nations in this part of of the desert. And in fact, once settlers sort of observing and recording um, environmental conditions in this area in the latter part of the 19th century, um, almost every few years, they recorded that there were floods um in the desert and certainly those floods became more dramatic the more settlers arrived there um and and they began to observe how regular and how powerful these kinds of floods could be um but prior to the the, the settler history and these you know thousands and thousands of years that preceded um the relatively very short period of settler history of this region um, These kinds of floodings um, were were very, um, I wouldn't necessarily say predictable part of life um, for indigenous communities, but certainly um, a very central feature of um, environmental uh, knowledge, uh, traditional ecological knowledge. Um, One of the characters that I focus on most closely in the early part of the book is um, the role of mesquite trees in indigenous peoples and particularly Cahuillas and Kumeyais um, uh, lives and daily sustenance. So mesquite trees are these like magic trees um, that have been really important part of the the human history as well as the ecological history of the of the area. Um, and Kuias and Cuniyas, um were 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 and are experts at, at maintaining and cultivating uh, and using mesquites um, and mesquite beans for pancakes and tea and candy and flour and, um, you know, all of these different kinds of, um, of resources um, that mesquites can provide to, to human communities. And mesquites also have these, these, these well known to Kui'as uh, and Kumi'ai's relationships to the water. So floods would um, often uproot these stands of mesquite, but they would also bring in new seeds. Um, so it was the ways in which Native peoples have worked with um flooding and water um where fluctuation was part of the story um of of how um daily life um proceeded and also um how life proceeded over the course of decades or or even centuries Um, so so that to me was um um, very instructive um uh, i learned a lot about um you know we often we think of deserts as, by definition, waterless. Um, And that has never been true um, in this part of the desert. Um, And that was one of the most fascinating things to me about its early history.
2: And then on the the flip side to all that, settlers have very much struggled to make sense of this place over the last Mm -hmm. 150 years or more. Can you tell us about how Early California settlers conceived of the Salton Sea and how they made use of it, and indeed, why did they call it the Salton Sea at all? Why this particular name for this place?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 original Salton Sea that 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 name was really actually used before the flooding that created what we think of as the current stand of the Salton Sea. Now it was actually originally called that during one of these smaller overflows that happened in 1891, and it was named after a, a community of, called Salton, that was likely named after the fact that this area had um, lots of natural salt re- reserves. And actually one of the first sort of settler projects in the area was um, uh, uh, a salt works. Um, they there were um, using Cahuilla laborers um, to uh, mine salt from the uh, what's now the, the bottom of the, the Salton Sea um and export it for mostly for meat preservation and those kinds of things um, and that's one of the things that was flooded by by the massive floods in, in 1905. um so so this this stand of water was renamed the Salton Sea um, by um, a geologist um, who thought that it was different enough from Lake Cahuilla um, these bodies of water that preceded it um, that it needed and deserved a new name um, and it was part of this broader, um, just settlers being confounded um, by this body of water in a place that they thought as they thought of as waterless, except for the water that they were bringing from the Colorado River. Um, and what's interesting about that is that um, many of the channels that they were using to divert water from the Colorado River were actually just dry river channels that the Colorado River had made in the past um uh and when it when it flooded the and sink um and so there were all these kinds of um um natural sort of infrastructure or river-made infrastructures that settlers were using um, and yet the flooding itself seemed to come um as a massive surprise you know in part because of um you know settler epistemologies that saw sort of um environments as settlers arrived in them and originally perceived them as as sort of unchanging. Um, That idea of fluctuation and certainly idea of flooding in a desert um, was something that, um, despite clear evidence, um, uh, seemed to be um, uh, counterintuitive, uh, I think, to a lot of the earlier arrivants um, in this part of the desert. Um, The project at that time was diverting water from the Colorado River to establish um, the imperial valley is an agricultural sector um is an agricultural area um and the colorado river flooding that happened from 1905 to 1907 it was incredibly dramatic um it was really destabilizing for the new settlers who had arrived here it washed out um all of their you know farms that they were building along you know this part of the southern part of the salt and sink um it washed away the the um the railroad tracks which was this very kind of um uh sensational kind of part of the story you would see pictures of railroad workers trying to move the tracks you know newspapers all across the us it captured quite a lot of attention um in one of these stories of you know a, a settler irrigation scheme um that that was um quite literally washed away um, by flooding from the Colorado River. It was it was widely seen as a, as a, as a major disaster. Um, and in subsequent years, um, particularly because settlers came to understand a little bit better about the nature of the soil that they were trying to farm. What they realized is that they needed a place for runoff from farms um, for this Colorado River water in part because the, the, the soil that they were trying to farm was so alkaline. Um, So having a natural dumping basin um, for for all this runoff water came to seem like a natural outcome um, for the Salton Sea um, and uh, a a kind of um, almost a boon um, for settler agricultural projects in the desert. And that very quickly came to shape its ecological reality, um, this idea that nature had gifted settlers um, a sort of natural dumping basin for, for their wastewater. Um, And that perspective, I think has been one of the most tenacious kind of parts of the way that people have understood the Salton Sea um, is in some ways, just as a wasteland. Um, And that came very early on in its settler history.
2: So we've been talking about how humans have used and have perceived the Salton Sea. But as you indicated uh, a little bit earlier in in this interview, the Salton Sea also has an animal history. And I'm Mm -hmm. curious how histories of humans have intersected with histories of birds in this particular place. What can we learn about the ecology of the Salton Sea and of the wider region at that Mm -hmm. kind of intersection point between the bird history and the human history?
1: yeah it's a great question yeah the birds have been such an important part of the story um and again anybody who's been to the salton sea it's one of the things that you cannot ignore about its reality is the is the presence and the importance of birds um in part that's because you know again you know the salton sea has this this incredibly complex and contradictory reality it's not only you know this highly polluted body of water one that's evaporating one that's causing respiratory health problems for nearby human communities It's also one of california's most important um wetland resources for migrating bird populations um so it's a wildlife refuge along the pacific flyway um it's been um estimated that it's among the most important um wetland resources for birds along the west coast Um, and this is not necessarily because uh you know because this the the body of water in the desert has always been the most important wetland resource it's it's mostly because settler um development particularly in coastal california has done such a good job of um uh filling in wetland resources. Um, and so it's 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 really not necessarily the best um resource for, for migrating bird populations, but it is among one of the last of them. Um, and for that reason, you know, when environmentalists are sort of committed to um, conservation at the Salt and Sea, it's mostly um, on behalf of um, the birds um, because of how important it is to, to those bird populations. Um, so that's been a really important part of, um, the story. And in, in the book, I get to, you know, really think about, um, particular kinds of, um, bird species. I get to think about, you know, this really beautiful bird called the Lecrompe thrasher, um, that, you know, was really, it signified quite a lot about the difference between settler and indigenous understandings um, of birds in the area. Um, I got to think a lot about how um, frustrated farmer, settler farmers were about um, ducks from the, um, from the wildlife refuge eating their crops. um, And they would use decommissioned military artillery to try to get the, birds out of their crops. Uh, And then the the ducks would then use the Salton Sea as a refuge um, and fly out to the Salton Sea because they knew that the farmers couldn't reach them there. Um, All of these kinds of fascinating and sometimes funny interactions um, that were happening um, really had important uh, ecological consequences. Um, The ways that, say, a conservation biologist looked at and understood Um, dense bird populations at the Salton Sea um, as an indication of declining bird populations in the broader Western region versus how farmers saw those same dense bird populations as evidence that they could shoot as many birds as they wanted because um, they were overpopulated. Um, All of those kinds of meaning-making practices about human relationships to birds um uh, actually had real consequences for the birds themselves um how policy proceeded about things like maintaining the wildlife refuge um there in the southern part of, of the salton sea um you know as well as the actual physical conditions of the sea itself so so tracking these kinds of interplays between um the way that you know, for example, indigenous people were looking at bird populations um, and observing um, how bird populations and changes to bird populations were indicating broader ecological problems um, in the area. Um, You know, decades before um, scientists were making those same observations to how hunters were um, perceiving the Salton Sea as a great place for um recreation um to how farmers and conservation biologists were sort of always at odds um over whether or not there were too many birds or too few you know all of these kinds of of things um were opportunities for me to um uh to learn a lot about how crucial those kinds of relationships are um and how those those meaning making practices actually have very, very real material consequences. Um, and and, and that, was, that was a really fun opportunity to, to take a look at that.
2: One of the major changes that you describe really throughout the American West during the 20th century is what you call the, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, the concretization, the concretization <laughs> of water mm-hmm. across, uh, as I said, Southern California and across the American West in general. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by this? What was this process and what were its implications for Southern California and especially for the Salton Sea?
1: Mm, yeah. One of the many surprising things about the story um, mm-hmm. is how connected the 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 sea st- uh, the sea is to these dam and canal building pro- projects across the west, Um it, you know I was um, startled I think to learn how um, ubiquitous dam building has become on waterways um, uh, you know across the west as I as I was looking at this particular part of the story in my first book D- dams were not you know a central thing that I that I looked at and to see how transformative Um, dams and dam building has been for um, the environmental history of the West um, and particularly for um, the consequences of dams in terms of Indigenous dispossession uh, in the West and how important that story has been um, to the relationships between Indigenous nations and and settler colonialism in the 20th century. uh it it just became clear that that was um just a crucial piece um, of how the story played out and so at the salton sea i i I connect that to um not only some of the you know biggest and and um most powerful dams along the colorado river and in particular the hoover dam um the history of that kind of dam building um the political economy of that kind of built and was really connected to the Salton Sea um, in in ways that um, uh, I think we tend to forget. Um, And so in fact, the the financing for the the Hoover Dam was justified in large part as a way of protecting the Imperial Valley from future floods from the Colorado River. Um, Bringing the river under control was really seen as part of protecting uh, settler livelihoods that had very clearly um, been disturbed um by you know what was seen as the disastrous flooding of 1905 to 1907. Um, so in very material and direct kinds of ways um, the the sea itself and and settlement in the imperial valley was connected to, to these kinds of massive transformational dam building projects um, uh, that we think of when we think about uh you know sort of infrastructure and water uh, in the 20th century West and and particularly, you know, sort of the, the hydraulic empires of California and those kinds of things. Um, and the other piece of it that I was interested in, so not just these massive sort of, um, region making dam projects. Um, but also, you know, the, the smaller projects, um, that had very real local consequences for people in and around um, this part of California. Um, so in particular, the building of canals like the All-American Canal and the Coachella Canal um, as projects to build in permanent waterways for Colorado River water, um, that were really as much about social control as they were um, about control um, over the water itself. So the All-American Canal was designed specifically to bring um, control over the Colorado River fully north of the U.S.-Mexico border um, to make sure that the water did not have to pass through Mexico before it came into the Imperial Valley. Um, so I sort of tracked um, the the racial tenor of those conversations about um, U.S. control, All-American control um, over uh, Colorado River water north of the border. Um, as well as the local consequences of, of things like building the Coachella Canal, which diverted Colorado River water north um, to the Coachella Valley. Um, and the Coachella Canal was really a consequence of settlers having drained the um, aquifers that Kuwea people had relied on for hundreds of thousands of years um, in the, the sort of northern part of this um, desert region. Um, and the draining of those aquifers um, by settlers for their farms really necessitated to, in their eyes another kind of external water um, source more control over water um, and those kinds of things um are, were part of this process of as i say sort of settler colonialism building settler um uh, priorities or processes into the landscape itself and um, so in that chapter i really get to Kind of explore how you can track um, the environmental stories um, uh, that proceeded you know kind of along lines of of concrete um, but also how how those kind of settler power and settler priorities um, kind of build that into the the firmament um, and seek to shape you know even rivers um, along particular kinds of priorities um, that have um, histories that we can observe and track um, and
2: learn from this is not gonna be a, a novel uh, 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 thing to 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 make note of, but just you know discussing your book, having having read it, it just really drives home the fact that so much about settler colonial. Views on the non-human world are just so rooted in this idea of control, and just Mm -hmm. how much settler colonialism tries to 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 wrangle these, you know, kind of fundamentally uncontrollable natural uh, uh, occurrences. Just the word Mm -hmm. "control" has come up a lot in this interview, and it's really just kind of underscoring that 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 fact to me. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think that you know a lot about this book is really about you, you know as an environmental humanist looking to environmental epistemologies of different kinds of peoples, mm-hmm. right? And how mm-hmm. they observe human relate, you know, what are the fundamental values that people hold about their relationships to nature? Um, mm-hmm. uh, is there a flexibility or a fluidity or a relationality that's built into, um, human nature dynamics, um, those kinds of things, or, or, you know, do you use concrete to control whether or not a river can overflow? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, th- th- those kinds of things really um, suggest to us um, these broader environmental epistemologies um, the, yeah. that, that I find to be, um, yeah, exceedingly important to understand.
2: Yeah, and settlers are all about, like, ranking landscapes, right? Saying like, this is a place that is worthy. This is a place that is unworthy. And of course, sort of on that tack, Americans have often seen the Salton Sea as an unworthy place, as a wasteland, even as a place of, of death. And, you know, we've touched on this a little bit, but can you expand on that a bit? Why is that the case? Uh, why has the Salton Sea been seen through this particular lens? And then how has that shaped kind of use patterns of the Salton Sea itself by settlers?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, one of the 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 first um, journal articles that I wrote on this project was was in part or um, my own re- response, my own you know seeking to understand exactly this question. Um, and what I was kind of trying to track is why it has been so hard um, for environmentalists to mobilize action around protecting or doing conservation work at the Salton Sea um, you know why is this is generally regarded in you know Southern California as uh, as you say as a wasteland um, as a place that's not worthy of protection um, you know and and the birds often are kind of held up as the only kind of um, you know uh, environmental you know part of the environmental conditions that that, that prompt um, the need for conservation. More recently, um, folks have done, uh, you know, a lot of work around, you know, this is an environmental justice priority in California environmental politics as well, because as the salt and sea evaporates, it leaves behind the shoreline um, that that is highly polluted and it gets kicked up in the in the wind and causes these um major and deeply troubling um respiratory health problems for local communities so those kinds of environmental um conservation and you know environmental justice frameworks um there are a lot of you know incredibly inspired and inspiring environmentalists um and environmental justice activists and, and policymakers who are deeply invested in the Salton Sea. But in general, um, it has been very, very difficult to mobilize resources you know, at the state level and certainly at the national level um, in protection um, of the Salton Sea or, or to maintain it. Um, and that was one of the questions that first drew me to this project is, is seeking to understand what what are the places that inspire Action by what we call mainstream environmentalism, and, and what are places that tend to be overlooked um, in in those kinds of um, environmental priorities? And I think that those decisions often come down to whether or not a landscape is seen um, as you know pure nature. Uh, and the Salton Sea story has always been, you know, play on words, polluted um, by its histories with um irrigation technology and and settlers and being used as an irrigation dump um and all of these kinds of ways in ways that actually fight against its own um uh, uh its own needs now um and so so you know for example um journalists in california are just consistently you know um you know, write these sort of head-scratching headlines that are, like, you know, is the the Salton Sea a wildlife refuge or is it a polluted hazardscape? You know, and trying to understand, you know, whether or not it's it's pure nature and worthy of um, protection in a way that a place like like Tahoe might be, um, just perceived as pure nature. Um, and in some ways, it's it's funny, you know. Often reservoirs um, prompt more kind of environmentalist um, action. Um, and angst um, than places like the Salton Sea. And in fact, when I publish um, public work around the Salton Sea, one of the first um, kinds of pushback that I often get in the comment section is is, um, folks in California saying, uh, it's not worth protecting. We shouldn't even be talking about it. Just let it evaporate. It's a wasteland. Um, And it's that kind of perspective that, that I think, again, sort of illustrates those deeper sets of values um, about what kinds of landscapes are worthy of protection and which ones aren't. Um, those are themes that I was really deeply invested in in my first book. In the first book, I tracked kind of how um, race, racism and settler colonialism um, uh, really shape um, how we think of particular landscapes as worthy of protection or not. Uh, and I think that that really plays out in this story as well.
2: As we begin to wrap up, I want us to look to the future a little bit and what the future might hold for the Salton Sea. So what kinds of possible futures are there for this place? And then broadening out a little bit, how do those possible futures speak to larger ecological futures for humanity and for the planet itself?
1: Oh, it's just a small question.
2: It's a little little, little (laughs) question. Easy to answer, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, so Predict the-, the future
2: for us, Tracy, if you would.
1: <laughs> the whole, the global future. Yeah. Yes, um, please. <laughs> well, I, it, it's, it's funny. Um, and that's actually kind of exactly what I hope the book might do. Um, so when I think about the Salton Sea as, as a microcosm, I think that it's, you know, it's complex set of problems, what, what planners would call it, you know, it's a wicked problem. Um, You know, in these kinds of complex sets of environmental problems, policy problems, social problems, um, all sort of intersect in this place um, in ways that are actually not unlike, you know, much, much bigger problems like global climate change, policy problems, social um, problems, um, environmental problems, to be sure um that you know suggests these you know the need for these massive um sort of structural changes um, so in some ways i hope that this story is kind of you know pointing out that complexity um of those those kinds of environmental problems is, is really an opportunity for us to better understand um human relationships to the environment and particularly how these human power structures like settler colonialism racism, cl- capitalism, um, heteropatriarchy, all these other kinds of, you know, sets of power structures that organize social relations actually have environmental consequences as well. Um, and I think those are are important lessons to learn when we think about those, those bigger problems. As far as the Salton Sea's immediate future, um, you know, at the moment it's evaporating rapidly, um, the Torres Martinez Desert Cuyas um, are, are sort of track, you know, as well as a number of um, local stakeholders um, are really sort of tracking the evaporation um, and, and seeking to mitigate a lot of the harm that that's um, going to cause um, for human populations as well as for birds. Um, that's certainly true of the folks down at the the wildlife refuge, which is actually called the Sunny Bono um some sea wildlife refuge and it is named after that zani bono um so there are all the di- all different kinds of mitigation strategies there are um uh, policy processes in place in the state of california um that have some federal funding um that are all kind of um working on mitigation strategies that range from doing um you know dust suppression um to finding um uh of future plans for um, making sure that there are resources there for um, migrating bird populations, um, those kinds of things. All of those are crucial and there are people who are deeply invested in that work um, and doing really heroic work um, to try to mitigate this rapid evaporation that's happening at the Salton Sea. Um, All of those things I think are incredibly crucial and important. I end the book by, by suggesting that that one of the things that that the set of kind of impossible problems that the Salton Sea poses um, really asks us to think not only about environmental history on these broader scales, um, but also about solutions to environmental problems on, on broader scales. And, and here I'm really borrowing from um, indigenous studies theorists um, who, who ask us to kind of you know broaden our understandings of what we think about as possible. Um, you know, when we think about mitigation strategies for this kind of environmental problem or for other kinds of environmental problems, um, what if we introduce sort of broader questions about structural change? So if if the sea, you know, has been settler maintained in ways that have produced these kinds of outcomes, um, shouldn't decolonization be a part of the conversation that we have a, a, about environmental solutions to, you know these vast sets of problems that exist here. Um, I would also say that given the relationship between the Salton Sea and the Colorado River, you can't talk about long-term solutions to the, the problems that exist here without talking about um, various um, dam removal kinds of campaigns that have happened across the West. Um, and it's hard to ignore the success stories that have been associated with dam removal. Um, and there are some conversations that are beginning to happen um, you know for dam removal at broader scales um, that um, uh, that have happened in, in, in waterways across the west um, and, and those kinds of things, right. So so broadening kind of the set of what we consider um, possibilities um, that are policy based possibilities, but also broader broader kind of imaginative possibilities uh, for, you know, thinking ourselves into, um a more balanced kind of relationship um between humans and the and the ecosystems that they that they live in
2: and then for my last question i know this book has only been out for about what like not quite two months at this point, so it might be <laughs> might be kind of kind of a silly question, but I always like to get a preview from my guests uh, as to mm. what they're working on next or what they've been working on in the interim. I know that that scholars always have a few plates spinning at at, mm. at one time, so I'm curious uh, what the future might hold for you. What what kind of project you you have your eye on now?
1: Yeah, so I've started a a project, or in some ways, continuing a project um, that I you know, was initially looking at when I was um, doing my master's research work a very long time ago. Um, and it's a project that I'm describing as an environmental history of childbirth. Um, so it's a it's a departure in a lot of ways from the first two projects um, it, in the sense that I, I'm interested in, in kind of exploring and, and looking at the histories of human bodies um, in environmental conditions, the project, as I understand it now, is is really asking kind of three questions. Um, And the first question is how have um, ideas about nature kind of shaped what we think of as, you know, as natural childbirth, um, you know, versus medical or technological childbirth? How have those ideas changed over time about the relationship between human bodies and birth? Um, and our understandings um, of nature. Um, The second question is how have um, bodies as environments changed over time? What are the material conditions of our bodies? Um, How are they related to broader environmental conditions and and how does that shape um, these biological processes of of childbirth as well as cultural um, influences on childbirth and those kinds of things. And the third question is how have the environments of childbirth themselves changed over time. Um, so, so I'm really interested in this in this project and thinking um, about um, kind of breaking down those barriers even further between humans and nature, uh, sort of resituating bodies um, in in environments and, and thinking about how kind of our cultural understandings of both bodies and nature um, have really shaped. Uh, both our meaning-making practices around birth and also material conditions about about um, childbirth in different kinds of historical contexts. So I'm thinking about it as a bigger book. Um, I've been really excited um, about the the potential impact um, of that work, um, and I hope that that folks find it generative. Um, for me, it's really kind of inspired by. Um, questions about the the historical confluences of environmental injustice and reproductive injustice, um, and what might it look like to kind of situate those things next to each other in a in a historical study. Um, yeah. So so thanks for asking about that. I'm I'm really excited about it.
2: Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I love any work that, that can show people that things that seem as though they do not fit into environmental history actually do have these deep environmental histories. And that sounds like a really <laughs> perfect example of, of, of that kind of work. So that, that, sounds, that sounds great. Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, thanks. Dr.
2: Tracy Brinvoiles is an associate professor and is the program chair in women's and gender studies at the University of Oklahoma, and whose latest book is The Settler's Sea, California's Salton Sea and the Consequences of Colonialism, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press at the end of last year in 2021. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tracy. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Steve.
1: It's been my pleasure.